Uh, hey, welcome back to a new episode of Africa's a Country Talk, or in short, AIAC Talk. I'm Sean Jacobs, I'm streaming from Brooklyn in New York City, I'm making my mouth like that because you know what's happening yesterday. And with me is uh, Will Shoki in Johannesburg. We are the co-presenters of this Africa's a Country's weekly discussion and interview show. This is episode 17. We we're just joking earlier. We don't know how we got here, but we're here. And our producer is Antoinette Engel. She's in Cape Town, South Africa. And if you missed our program last week, be sure to check that out. We spoke about NSARS with scholars and activists Saeed Husseini and Ani Olaloku Teriba. And that's available on our Patreon if you want to watch the full episode. Otherwise, check out the clips from the show on our YouTube channel. And hit like and subscribe, please, as always. So we have a great program for you today. Um, it happens to be election day in the United States. Wink, wink. It's a good day, as Will puts it. I don't know why Will thought today was a good day. People are stressed over your Will. I saw earlier the former ambassador, former U.S. ambassador to South Africa, Patrick Gaspar. He's also like a former unionist. Um, he's now with Open Society. He tweeted something like, people, calm down. Calm down. It's only exit. It's early exit polls. It's like, it's going to be a long day. Yeah. Anyway, Will put it, it's a good day to talk about people who know the nature of America as a paradox of lofty dreams and also as a failed state all too well. The people who desperately try to get in and who in turn America dress, desperately tries to keep out, which are refugees and immigrants. And our guests uh, today to help us talk about um, particularly uh, the, the status of the experiences of African refugees and African immigrants to the U.S. are the writer and journalist Abraham Zere and the lawyer um, Aya Said. Last week, we took a W on Chile's referendum. You know, now we, we take Ws over here. Um, and before that, we also took a W on the masses victory in Bolivia against authoritarianism. Uh, but today, we're kind of nervous because guess what? Um, Americans are voting. <laughs> And as somebody did remind us, actually, before we get too excited, as somebody did remind us on Twitter, actually, well, I tweeted it. I'm not going to say people reminded us. <laughs> I tweeted what other people said, which is like, it's very, it's a very different America these days because it's, it, it's America's not, it's not like, oh, they're voting in America. We all should now like focus on America. It's, it's very different in that um, America is not the center of the world anymore. There are now other powers like Russia and China, but nevertheless, it is still, in terms of democracy, it's the most populous democracy in the world. It's it's the largest democracy. Well, actually, it's not the largest democracy. India has that has that distinction. And let's not get into that. India organizes an election over, I think it's something like four weeks, where they vote in stages, and they have they actually have a infrastructure that includes a national electoral commission, which is my big problem that I have with the US, is that whatever you say about the result of the election year, the infrastructure of how they conduct election is an, elections are a major problem. They do not have a centrally placed uh, electoral commission. Every state runs its own electoral machinery. The electoral machinery is heavy politicized. So if you have a democratic governor or a Democrat running you know, the, the, the state and that governor appoints a Democrat, they usually appoint like a technocrat whose key job is not to deny people the right to vote. The opposite is with the other party who, if they appoint people, you just know 
that the the whole trick is to prevent people from voting, particularly poor people, black people, um, Latinos. I think I saw today that in Harris County, that's the county where the Republicans um, took the 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 they try to prevent the votes that were counted there from what they call drive-by. So you you go, it's like when you go in America, you can go to a bank and drive by, like a drive-by, you get food, you go you bank like that. And so people were drive-by voting, but of course, because of COVID. So uh, three sets of Republicans, I think one, the local representative, took the results to one of these votes not to be counted. Um, and a judge had to like stop them. So, you know, and then I saw today in that same county, which is heavily Latino, they they had something like five or six voting stations and yeah. they they closed most of them and left only with one so the whole the whole wow. thing here is like the starting point is to prevent people from voting but having said that well i'm gonna let you take that the, the stab first at this from the outside what do you think yeah. is gonna happen here you know it, <laughs> you can make all kinds of indications and not say anything even if you want You've already indicated some worrying signs about the voter suppression trends which are, are happening across the country. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, from afar, I have a sense of foreboding, but it's not really a, a sense of foreboding aimed at the result of the election necessarily and more what this is going to be the beginning of. Because I think a lot of people are looking at the polls and they're projecting a Biden victory and much as a Biden victory, I think, is likely, I think it might be a, a bit of a, of a Peric victory, which is to say that, like, I think that even if Biden wins, right, and there's going to be a long protracted period before we get confirmation that Biden has won, it's going to be really exhausting. And Trump, I think, is probably going to concede. Uh, I think he's, he's going to sort of overplay how much he's unlikely to concede, but only as a way of trying to, to secure a very clean exit for himself, to get a slap on the wrist so that his back taxes aren't investigated, his campaign finances aren't audited. But I think ultimately he's going to concede. There's going to be a peaceful transfer of power. I don't think personally that there's going to be some massive standoff. But I think that once Biden is in office, for me, that's that's the period I'm really starting to worry about, which is to say that I think a lot of people are are looking at a Biden victory as a restoration of the status quo ante, but in a positive way. So they say, we want normality again. We want decency in the White House. We want competency in the White House. When I think what a lot of people have forgotten quite quickly is that Trump's election was sort of an expression of everything that was wrong about America in the first place. So to restore how America was prior to Trump's candidacy is to just bring back the kind of hollow liberal centrist politics, which were discredited after the 2008 financial crisis. So it feels, I mean, the reason I have a sense of foreboding is that I think that it's going to be very difficult for Biden to rule. He doesn't really have a mandate. He's only sort of marketed himself as the not Trump candidate. And I think that in the next four years, if the pitch is, we're just going to go back to the way America was pre-Trump, then we're, we're probably going to be setting ourselves up for a repeat of a Trump candidacy, but much worse, because a person who sort of is the voice of the blowback against the American establishment in 2024 is going to be competent, is going to have a political project, 
because Trump didn't have a political project. And that for me is potentially terrifying. Um, so it's, a, it's really a sense of foreboding that a lot of people are like, okay, this is the end of what has truly been a horrible four years. And no doubt it has been a horrible four years, but honestly, it feels like the beginning of something worse, that this is only the start of a, of a protracted war. And this might be one battle um, that is won in the, in, in, the, in the medium to short term, but, but it's, I don't know, it feels like things are only gonna get worse, which is a, is a very bleak forecast to give. Right. And just to a quick point, I think one is to to your point about uh, what would be the mandate of a of a of a uh, Biden presidency. Uh, he needs to then also have Congress. So the, the Democrats currently control the House of Representatives, but it, crucially, it has to control the Senate. I think I read somewhere that there's like nine uh, Senate seats that are in play, which the which the if the Democrats can win that, then they can prevent this kind of thing that we just saw with Trump at the last minute, like appointing a judge or the way that a lot of really good legislation would die like a death, which was what happened with um, under, under Obama. So that's that's something that's very crucial. And I think, but even more than that, and I think this is this is for me a big debate as somebody who, you know, uh, people, as people heard, I kind of live here. I did vote uh, last week. I did vote for the, for the less worse option, of course. Um, I mean, well, I would have- Bernie Sanders too. I mean, we don't have time now, but to your points about uh, this, this is just sort of like we're in another holding zone until whatever comes in four years. The issue is like when presented with actual political alternatives, the Democratic Party, which is just not interested in that, and they always go for these kind of safe, uh, nondescript, um, you know, politics that doesn't amount to anything. And, and to be and to be frank, that's what Kamala Harris. And, and uh, Joe Biden represents. But I want to make a one last point because we want to bring in our guests uh, next, uh, is that even more than that, I think, has to do with this, the way that the elections are organized. And I'm repeating myself here, but I do think it's it seems that, I don't know if, I, if, if even the Democrats are interested in reforming the electoral system. And that's why I think the issue, Not yeah, you know, you're gonna need like social movements, like in the US, as, as people are often left as a right to point out here, like the only time in America when you've had like real political change is when you've had social movements pushing for that change, whether it was the civil rights movement or whether it was labor before that in the 1930s with the New Deal or whether it was later on the AIDS movement or more recently what we're still going through Black Lives Matter, um, you're not getting any political change from political from people who are in office. You're gonna have to force that change by going to the streets. The thing with Biden is, the argument is that Biden, under a Biden presidency, they would be more receptive to that kind of pressure because as we now know from the last four years, we're not getting, we're not getting any of that kind of reaction, that positive kind of reaction that we're gonna get from somebody like Trump. Um, just before we move on, I wanna uh, apologize. There's some people pointing out that my, um, uh, uh, image is a bit out of focus. Um, I apologize for that. Uh, I'm blaming the internet in the US maybe today. It's, oh, it's overloaded. Shutting it down. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's, they're shutting down the internet yet today or something. So in any case, Will, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, you might not be following American elections too closely, but follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or our website, which is africasacountry.com. All of our work is published under Creative Commons license. We're basically socialists. So feel free to repost it and share it wherever you want. And please remember, if you have questions for our guests, 
put them in the chat on Facebook, on YouTube, or in the thread of the live stream and be part of the conversation because we want everyone to, to participate. Right. Now, so um, on to our first guest then, which is um, Abraham Zere. Uh, Abraham is a US-based Eritrean exiled writer and journalist. Um, and I think he's about to join us right now. We're just kind of holding, in a holding. we're in a holding pattern here. Um, Abraham, uh, there he is. Great, great framing, by the way, Abraham. I like the light. Um, All right, thank you. Uh, although your shirt is a week late, or is it two weeks late when we did the check? <laughs> Abraham, before we ask you like some serious questions, um, uh, before we start chatting, just like I, I, I've, I, I wanted to ask you this, like you use um, Zere as your last name. And I've also seen in some places you say um, Tesfalul. So is, I, I gather that there, there's some explanation for that. I mean, it's, it's probably not a mystery. It's not weird. But just for the sake of people who may not understand, like, why it's sometimes you are Zere and that sometimes you are Tesfalul. Can you explain that quickly? Okay. So in Eritrea and Ethiopia, and I think this also happens in, in Kenya where the Q. The the, the the father's first name becomes last name. So in my case, as follows is my father's first name, and the Zara is my grandfather's first name. So when we come to the, to the West, we usually take our grandfather's first name as last name because we put that as middle name or our grand our father's as middle name. So in my case, for example, my daughter's name is Lul Abraham. Her last name is Abraham. That's my name. So it just becomes easy. That's that's I think what happens in also in in Kikuyu, for example. Makoma Wanugugi instead of Makoma Watyango. Ah, I think I've That's noticed that in South India, there's also people where, where you, you become like, I used to room like, like uh, with my roommate when I was a, when I first came to the US was from South India and his name was like, like a combination of like his mother's name was the public name he used and then he had another name. So he was like Gauri Shankar but then at other times we'd call himself Kauri Rajapan. But anyway, so but I'm I'm just surprised that you change your name for the West. You gotta you gotta we gotta keep our names. We, we're not here to we gotta decolonize as, as that's I why I kept my, my daughter's name. I said I put her although she was born in America, her last name is Abraham, my name. So she'll be Lula Abraham back home and it should be Lula Abraham in America. Same. I'm sick. Yeah. That's good. I mean, so you as we're as we're establishing now, Abraham, you're you're from Eritrea, but at the moment you're in Ohio, and the reason for that is that you're you're currently stateless. But I think a lot of people will will wonder. They'll think to themselves, "Oh, wait a minute! You're from Eritrea. You're in the United States of America, but you're stateless." So you could could you explain to us what does it mean to be stateless, and and what's your story? How did you come from being born and raised in Eritrea? being in the United States of America now, but having the status of really being from neither country, but but being stateless. Okay, thank you. I left Eritrea in 2012. So initially I came to South Africa for a study. And Eritrea from the age of five on, no one can leave the country unless granted special permit from the office of the president. In my case, I got a scholarship to study in Ohio University in 2011. But I didn't get permit visa, uh, exit visa, that we need to approval from the office of the president. So 
finally, after four months of lobbying, I, I was permitted to go to South Africa to study in first state. And then from South Africa, I came to Ohio. Then I sought political asylum in America in 2012 and was granted in 2015. And since then, I'm considered a stateless because I, I discarded my American, my Afghan passport. And I'm not still an uh, uh, American citizen, so I'm just stateless. I use this travel document to, to travel from country like it has some visas. So it's issued by the Department of Homeland Security. So I, I can vote either in America or in Eritrea. Of course, of course, we don't have any votes, but I don't have passport from for any country. I'm legal resident, of course, but I don't know. I don't have any status as citizen. Um, can you? So one one thing is like it even gets weirder for you because at the beginning of the year, Donald Trump said that Eritrea would be included. Um, on a list of countries that would be banned, whose citizens would be banned from traveling um, to the U.S. And what was his rationale again? Because I want to get to this other weird part about being stateless and somebody banning you from from coming to his country. Right? Like, what was the rationale for why he banned Eritrea? I think for three reasons. First, there was much overstay of visa. Like, for many trans who came to U.S., they would never return. They would just ask political asylum. Second is lack of collaboration with what they call the security systems, like with electronic passports. And third is Eritrea refused to accept refugees who were denied asylum in America and were supposed to be deported. So for these reasons, it was included as part of the travel ban where citizens from Eritrea cannot travel to America now to say to stay here. For example, if you marry an Eritrea now, you can't bring her or you can't bring him. Basically, same with Nigeria. So, how is that bring my mom here now? Is that the case even if, let's say, you have family members and some of your family members successfully made it to the United States, they can't join you from this point onwards? No. Wow. Even if they themselves are refugees? Refugees, they were allowed to, to come. But otherwise, for example, if I say, if somebody marries an Eritrean who lives, say in Uganda or South Africa or Kenya, he can't bring him or her to the, to the US. Like he can't process the, the papers for, for the person. And in your case, um, it, you're already stateless. Um, and then you have on top of it, like a travel ban, like like how how strange does that make you even, it kind of sounds kind of like Kafka-esque, Kafka like in this, you're in this like weird, thing that doesn't make any sense anymore after a while. You know, not only because of the travel ban, but even previously, whenever I travel, I have traveled seven times the last three years internationally. So I need to get travel document, which is valid for only six months. And then I need to get visa for the countries, which is very long process, very tedious process. For example, last year when I went to when I traveled to UK for just weeks at conference, I had to submit 11 documents. That's how I travel usually with this kind of very tedious kind of uh, visa application process, uh, uh, biometrics tests, interviews, and all this baggage. And the travel document takes like from six to eight months to, to come. So you can never make plans. 
So just to there's one thing I'm kind of curious about your because you're you're outspoken. I know that you're also like uh, you're you're I think the chairman or chairperson of the Pen Eritrea. Uh, you write in Al Jazeera. You you know you've people don't know it, but you write on Africa as a country. They should just Google. Um, does that make it worse for some? Because if you just kept your head down, like I mean, what what? How does how does that play into it? As somebody who's so outspoken, does that does that make things more? That that makes it harder to be a refugee and to be stateless. When is if you just kept your head down and I don't know, like blended in or something? It, it makes it much harder. Yeah, you know, back home, I fled because I can't write whatever I want. I can travel freely, and now I thought I got. I, I'm to, I came to a free country where I could write whatever I want, where I could travel freely, but I'm denied of these two things, basic things. So, for example, since I also openly criticized Trump, my friends would say, why don't you just keep quiet? Why do you need to write against Trump? Why do you need to criticize the American system? Why can't you just keep your mouth shut? So whenever I, I travel, for example, internationally, and then when I get return, sometimes they will, they will ask me to go to the waiting room, or search room, and then I, I say, I, I ask myself, okay, um, are they searching out online now? Would they get something that I wrote against Trump? Or, you know, this kind of uh, unsettling feeling. Yeah. Goodness, that sounds that sounds really intense. And I'm, I'm starting to wonder, maybe, maybe the reason Sean's internet is being slow is because they're actually trying to shut down yours because it's, it's insane the extent to which they try to to monitor your behavior. But I mean, to ask a question related to that, and this was something you pointed out in the article that you wrote for Al Jazeera, where you spoke about how generally immigration systems are built to make immigrants feel like they pose a threat to their host country and the world at large. You've just spoken about how arduous it is for you to get travel documents, how these Homeland Security departments are always monitoring your behavior. So reading that, I was wondering why why is it the case that Africans especially are, are treated as the biggest threat? And not only in Europe, where you know the dangerous journeys they make across the Mediterranean for a better life are, are heavily profiled and widely reported on, but in America as well, Africans are still treated this way, but very little spoken about it. Why do you think that's the case? Partly, I think, because we have failures of our government back home. We didn't have somebody to, to count on. We didn't have somebody to defend for us. And part of this also I mean, emanates from the, this racist policy. For example, if you are black, and especially if you are Muslim, say, you will have another layer of scrutiny. So I remember, for example, one professor who's naturalized US citizen and who came from Asia, she's colored, and she's an uh, American citizen and then fully tenured professor. She told us in class when she was ret uh, returning from international travel, it took her six hours to delete everything that mentions Trump in the in her social media accounts on her Facebook or Twitter and other stuff. So you can imagine the fear. And in my case, for example, the last eight years I, I lived in yes, I have done the biometrics test seven times. So every time I want to apply for travel document, I have to go to I have to to do the fingerprint. And they have to make sure that I'm still clean or whatever they, they search. 
and this this question baggage that as if I'm you know I'm I'm offending somebody. And the fact that, for example, when I was applying for visa for green card, I was asked to to do the syphilis and gonorrhea test. So you can imagine, I lived there before that. I lived in the US for the last three years, but only when I was applying for permanent resident card, I was asked to do the syphilis test. So as if, as if I'm kind of, you know, every refugees are either burden or they have some kind of, you know, some disease. I mean, I, I, that that room you mentioned earlier, I, I remember that room where they when you come in, and then you the officer takes your document and then they tell you to follow them, like it's like it's like it became like a pattern. And then I go to this little room and I would sit there for up to like two hours, sometimes three hours. Then they give you back your document and then they sort of say, if you say like, can I ask what the reason is? They say, just go, like we're not gonna tell you. And actually, just anecdotally, I actually ended up in that room one time with um, Yuma Sekela um, and uh, Tandizwa Mazwai. These are like very well-known South African musicians. And I was like, they're in this room too. But in, on the regular though, you would find it's mostly like Sudanese, Pakistani, yeah. um, uh, black, you know, generally black people, you know, in, in, in general, in that room, Africans, um, you know, of course, Latin Americans, but especially I, I did notice always Africans um, and then sort of South South Asians are like the people who dominate um, when you go into the room. Now, we have spoken about the U.S. here and we, we sort of saying how terrible, you know, how hard it is to be to kind of, as you said, come and go uh, and your state is not to change. And of course, you're subject to different kind of political regimes. The parties change. And we're going to get to you for a question about uh, what you make of the election and whether, you know, having either party in power changes things, but don't answer that yet. What I want to ask first is, we talk about the U.S. mostly, but African countries aren't any better, right, at, at, at welcoming refugees. In fact, we ran a, a piece this yeah. morning about how African countries in 1969 at the OAU, at the, the then known as the Organization for African Unity, which is now the AU, the African Union, um, came up with like guidelines that said, you know, we are going to be welcoming to refugees. And, and as we learned, like, you know, that didn't last long. They went back to closing borders, xenophobia, et cetera. You have personal experiences with this. And actually the first time I met you, when you told me like, yo, I studied in the free state of South Africa, I was like, what? So, I mean, what was your, I mean, to, if the Americans are like this, when it comes to, to like treating somebody who's a refugee, what was the experience like just being in South Africa? Like, how did South Africa, I mean, we know South Africa has not a great record on this, but what was the, what was, can you tell a little bit about that experience of being in South Africa as a refugee and with South African authorities? In fact, since I had a valid uh, student visa, then I didn't have much problem myself, but my sister came to visit me for a few months and I have seen many trans who stayed there for years. So whenever they want to stay for like so they 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 live with some kind of document it's just a white paper document and they have to renew it in the, the department of homeland and home affairs and whenever they want to renew it they have to pay bribes and it's official so you submit your papers you have your phone number there and they, from the office they'll just call you say okay you have to pay this amount so it's basically legal to ask refugees to pay bribes extra, which we have seen it in South Africa. 
the same in Sudan, for example. Whenever they the police get, whenever they need some cash, they just run run up refugees or you know, but, I mean refugees from Eritrea, from Ethiopia, this time from Syria, they run up and then make money. So I think it's except for for Uganda, which I have seen it much better than in most African countries. They are welcoming at the policy level and at individual, like even the, the people there. I, I saw them like very friendly in comparison to say South Africa or Sudan. Sudan is mainly the policy. I would assume similar things in other countries as well. Like, So you would say just, just to, I just want to repeat that because I think it's an interesting point you make. You say that the country with the best record in Africa when it comes to welcoming other Africans from your experience or from your friends, you would say it's Uganda? Yeah. That's an interesting. Um, that, that's interesting. I'm not talking about policy. About, I'm not talking about Kagame. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> sorry. I mean, uh, about um, the seventy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the like just the idea of having refugees. I think we have an article about this that that Uganda actually uh, makes refugees and particularly refugees feel like they are part of the social fabric, about integrating them into society, not necessarily making refugee camps. Which yeah. is what most other Kenya does that. Um, uh, yeah, South Africa does it. I saw yesterday that I read somewhere people were like, nobody talks about it, but Ghana does the same thing. Yeah. But, well, you wanted to ask about the elections in the US. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're in Ohio at this, at this stage, right? And uh, Ohio is a, is a key battleground state. It's, it's part of the Midwest, and the Midwest famously was this this uh, this this area that uh, Trump managed to secure in 2016, which previously voted Obama, and Ohio was one state that he won, and he's being projected to win it again, actually. So I'm interested to hear from you, what's it like on the ground? What does this 2020 election mean for refugees? Does it matter which party gets to control Congress or which presidential candidates wins? Or are we likely to see really no change in America's immigration policies at the moment? I think it's more than election. It's, it's basically it's a referendum, which I feel it. It's a referendum whether to stay, say, like for example, to go back to pre-Trump, which is fairly okay America, not fully democratic, but fairly okay, good America, or to stay and push further right and then Join the, the 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 league of now uh, Brazil, Turkey, uh, Philippines, India, and all these far right Hungary, Poland, and all of this, or Brexit. So it's more than election. I would say for, for immigrants, for refugees like myself, and for even for nationals who are just staying here. And if. It was as a word for Africans, for example. This project is something bigger for the leaders in Africa. It emboldens if people like Trump are voted. For example, Eritrea is one of the most repressive states, and most of the, those who, re, who support the regime support Trump as well. And you can see this kind of projection in other repressive countries. So it's more than election; it's just a referendum. Just to, to, before we before we um, invite Aya, just one last question to you um, for, for this part of the program. What would you want? What I mean, this is a long answer. It could be a program on its own. 
that in order for you to like not live in this limbo, because I know you wrote about this, like how the only thing you buy are books because like you're not sure like how long you'll be welcome in this place. But then you then the question might be asked, and you may not end up going back to Eritrea. You know, you you you're forming a different life sometimes. Like I think you are. You're also living your own life. But what do you what 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 is it that people want for people like you? What do you want for Eritrea? And again, you don't have like a like I said, that's a program in itself. Yeah. If somebody came up to you in an elevator and said, "So what needs to happen in Eritrea for this to for not for you not to live if you want this nightmare?" You mean how I want to how I, I, I want to Eritrea to be or yeah 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 and what what needs to happen for that Eritrea to be if you had to think about the three top things of what needs to happen for that Eritrea to come to pass release political prisoners allow free press allow free movement allow free trade everything is kind of closed now it's we're under sort of uh, internally self self ban done by the government so we i mean we just need to kind of abolish everything that's in place now for me to return it and feel safe or feel at home that's a good vision that's a good vision and and speaking of of releasing political prisoners and abolishing things i think it's a good time to bring on our next guest uh, who is working as as anyone should to abolish some of these repressive institutions in America, like ICE, which we're going to talk about in a, in a bit. Um, so bringing on Aya Sayed, who is a Bertha Justice Fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights, challenging unlawful detentions, counterterrorism practices, the criminalization of dissent, and systemic unlawful policing practice, which as we'll find out, is not only something that exists in countries like Eritrea, but in the United States of America, a supposedly democratic nation. Um, so Aya, thank you for, for joining us. And I want to start by, by looking at a recent piece that you right. wrote, which is absolutely uh, a brilliant uh, on Africa as a country. Um, and in this piece, you, you relay the experiences of migrants trying to get into the United States. And one of these experiences that you reflect on is working with a Cameroonian asylum seeker. And you mentioned over the course of the piece that Cameroonians, and I didn't know this, uh, but Cameroonians are now one of the top 10 nationalities arriving on the U.S. southern border seeking asylum, which I was absolutely shocked to, to hear. And what, what that sort of brought to mind is how when we think of, of Africans migrating to the United States, it's usually with this image of, of the model African, right? So it's this middle-class doctor or lawyer, and the discourse that usually surrounds that narrative is that the, the consequence of that migration is that there's a brain drain, right? Uh, the continent of Africa is losing all of this great talent, which is going to the United States. But what I'm increasingly realizing, and your piece and Abraham's writing is contributing to this, is that there are Africans who are increasingly making this arduous journey from the continent going to Central America and trying to get into the United States to seek asylum. So a question to start with is, is who are these people and, and why are they choosing to go to America? Yeah, um, thank you all for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. I'll say I myself um, 
came to the United States as a political refugee in 2000. And I think like you was shocked when I met these clients um, sometime in March of this year. My work wasn't even around immigration up until that point. Um, but I was sort of brought in with a team of attorneys who were fretting with COVID-19, thinking about how to release as many folks as possible, especially in the Deep South. And um, I found myself meeting this client um, and really being horrified and um, almost mesmerized by the fact that there were thousands of Africans from Cameroon and elsewhere who were making their way to the United States through South and Central America. Um, I, you know, who are these people? It's difficult to say. I mean, I think by and large in Cameroon, for example, um, over the last few years, there's been an escalating civil war that's left a lot of Anglophone Cameroonians um, feeling as though there's simply no home for them and no safe uh, uh, home for them in Cameroon. And they flee to Ecuador in large part because Ecuador is one of the few countries that allows them um, to enter the country without a visa. So it's really a, a last course um, for a lot of folks in Cameroon. Um, oftentimes they fly through Nigeria and other countries simply because they're scared to fly out from Cameroon, feeling that the military will um, will sort of catch them there and, and detain them at the airport. Um, and then flying to Ecuador and really from then on, going on this sort of harrowing journey uh, that they themselves are really unaware of. I mean, it's sort of one of those things that from talking to the clients that we had, seems as though it's sort of a haphazard, um, almost um, um, uh, orally sort of shared, um, really off the cuff journey that, you know, at each stage is getting um, uh, sort of figured out and um, compromised and shifted, et cetera. So it really is folks who are in the midst of some really rampant violence at home who feel as though they simply have no other recourse and are finding themselves in Ecuador and then from then on going on this journey that is quite unpredictable in a lot of ways. So just, just a related question then is, why is it that we never hear about um, African asylum seekers in the US? Like, what is it that we, I think I may have seen like one program on PBS uh, with, I think they did like a two-parter where they followed people. And again, it was related to this story of people coming through Panama, I think it was, walking via Panama. Right. Uh, yeah. So, but why is it that we don't, is, is it what, is it this thing that Willie is saying that there's the stereotype of this kind of highly educated African? Because, you know, the assumption is like, it's a long trip. You can't yeah. be a while to get here. If you, if you are going to flee, you flee to Europe. Or actually, you, you mostly flee to, it seems you mostly flee to a neighboring African country. Depending to mostly to a neighboring African country, then I think you probably go to like the Middle East or you go to Turkey and maybe to Hungary. So this this um, th this idea that there's that there's this there's now people who are making a journey across the ocean, right, um, to get to the U.S. Like why haven't we heard much about that about that story in the American media or in American popular discourse? I mean, I think there are a few things that describe this and I, you know, I must admit, I don't know that I have the full answer to this, but I think from my own experience, there are a few things. So one, um, there's a general, I think, anti-blackness that informs the way in which narratives are being shared in this country, by and large, that um, 
ensures that black migrants, especially in ICE detention, remain invisible and hyper invisible at that. Um, so, you know, that's really the first part of the answer. I think secondarily, um, the numbers are rising. So, for example, if you take Cameroon, um, in 2016, I believe there were um, less than 100, maybe even 29 to 30 deportations of Cameroonians in 2016. In 2018, that number almost doubled to about 140. And we believe that number has only increased since then. So I think there is a sort of surge that's happening over the last few years in response to the unrest that's happening um, in Cameroon, in the Congo, in the DRC and elsewhere. Um, and then I think finally, a lot of these migrants, from my understanding, are sort of caught in between two borders. So everyone talks about the southern border of the United States, and it's true, there are a significant number of Africans at the southern border. There are also a large number of African migrants in Mexico's southern border, and they're sort of trapped there for all intents and purposes. And I think, um, you know, no one's really been able to uncover exactly what's happening. Mexico itself is sort of in bed with the United States. States and trying to hide and um, repress these migrants. Um, they're sort of moving between camp to camp. They don't really know what to do. And the United States is placing pressure on Mexico to sort of keep them at bay. So um, I don't think a lot of them are even making their way into the United States to ensure that these stories are, are getting out. What I will say is happening, I think, in part because of um, the courage of a lot of these African migrants who are protesting, they're on hunger strikes. Um, uh, there are 80 Cameroonians in Pine Prairie in Louisiana who have been on hunger strike for weeks on end, uh, 40 women earlier this year. And it was only because of those actions that stories slowly started to trickle up into the media. So I imagine it wasn't even gonna become a story really up until um, folks really started risking their lives. Um, and demanding changes that then, you know, attorneys and the like started to enter these these detention centers and really uncover some of these horrifying um, stories that exist. Yeah, I mean, before we get into to discussing these truly horrific agencies that are repressing these people as you're describing now, I think I'm still fascinated on on your description of of the journey itself and thinking about the journey in relation to to the question of why these stories go underreported. And, and I wonder, I mean, something I'm curious to know is what is sort of the degree of exploitation that Africans are susceptible to en route to the United States? So you mentioned this fact that a lot of them don't even reach the United States. They're still in, in America's uh, southern border, and in Mexico, rather, southern border. Mm -hmm. and, I'm just I'm just wondering what happens when you're when they're going from what you know and the people you've spoken to, what happens when they're on that journey? You you were saying earlier that it's still unpredictable, it's still made up along the way. Does it have this sort of sort of sophisticated system where there's there's middlemen and middlemen try to to make a cut out of, of smuggling you through the borders? Or is it a matter of people just arrive in Central America and they find their way to the United States, like finding their way through the desert? It's hard to say. What I will say, though, is from the folks that I have talked to, and we represent about four Cameroonians, but through our clients, we're then able to talk to quite a few other folks, um, in part because I was just shocked by these stories. There doesn't seem to be a sort of middleman um, sort of guarantee system. Folks, by and large, will flee very unexpectedly from Cameroon, will go to Ecuador, 
um, from Ecuador, they're sort of told, one of my clients was essentially told at the airport, oh, you're African, the Africans all go to this particular hotel in Ecuador. Once she got to the hotel, um, she actually sort of got grouped with a um, group of Ghanaians who were in Ecuador at the time, who told her that if she wants to get to the United States, that she needs to join them on a sort of bus journey that will take her then to Colombia, to Panama, et cetera. Um, and then in fact, when she reached Panama, which is really one of the most harrowing parts of the journey, because by and large, most of it is on foot through really rough uh, rainforests and terrain, um, that she just left her group sort of randomly because they were going too quickly and she had um, pre-existing health conditions that made it really difficult to continue um, with the group. And she just sort of stayed and waited until the next group of folks came up. Um, so I imagine that there are um, sort of undercover journeys that folks are sharing, but there's also a lot that is being made up along the road. Um, I did not get the sense that there were folks who were sort of making um, a large business out of this. You know, I could be mistaken, so I, I don't want to talk um, about something, you know, I don't know about. But from what I um, heard from my clients, that it does seem to be a journey that each and every migrant takes and is almost unique and individual to their own circumstances and their needs. Folks are left behind at all times. And then the other thing to keep in mind is when reaching Panama, for example, the Panayan government's aware that this is happening slowly, but at a sort of escalating rate. And what they do is they actually transport migrants as soon as they enter Panama through three migration camps. So folks go to camp one, are then transferred to camp two, are then transferred to camp three. Um, so there is a sort of system that is uh, facilitated by these various governments um, to ensure, I think, that that the migrants aren't um, um, aren't dying on, on this path to freedom. So this is, this. I'm sort of showing my little bit of my lack of paying attention to what was an unfolding crisis. ICE is this American thing that mostly, and you have to correct me if uh, uh, it was operating under Obama, I understand also, but it really get, it really got attention for its breathtaking cruelty, particularly under Trump. And, and you know, it's part of the story of these African asylum seekers, refugees. How did, how did ICE become this way? Just because, you know, for those of us who paid attention but wasn't paying attention, because we also woke up one day and was like, yo, there's this thing called ICE, dragging people out of their houses and whatever. How did, how did ICE become so powerful this quickly? Um, and, and I know you could maybe if you could also be helpful since it is election season where Republicans will often point out, well, Obama did this thing too, um, which I'm assuming. So can you just kind of help some of our viewers to like untangle that, get that, get that story right? How did ICE become so powerful? I mean, I think if I knew the answer to that, I would um, have a book out by now and a sort of best release, uh, New York Times bestseller. But... Um, you know, from my own experience, I think, um, and it's, again, very limited to what I've been seeing over the last few months. What I will say is it seems as though um, under the Trump presidency, I sort of has this mandate that is by and large um, totally immune from any accountability and um, any judicial action. 
that has allowed it to operate in secrecy and um, under the veil of um, uh, of sort of um, judicial equity and ensuring that our streets are safe. Um, and so has been able to, as you said, by and large criminalize immigrants who are otherwise taking their kids to school, um, otherwise, you know, taxpayers and, and really vital members of the American um, civil system and American society. Um, and because of the narrative around the caravans, because of the narrative that Trump has spewed throughout his campaign and afterwards, um, I think Americans have allowed ICE's transgressions to increase and exacerbate over the years because there is this sort of fear of the immigrant, the the you know the robber, the the rapist, the you know you. I mean, we all know the language that Trump has has used over the last few years that I think really been a catalyst for um, this law enforcement agency. What you also see is that in a lot of states, ICE though a federal agency has actually deputized local police officers in cities and states across the country to uh, use local police forces for their own bidding. Um, so whereas otherwise it's a fairly narrow and small law enforcement agency because it's been able to sort of align itself with local agencies across the country, it really now has this very expansive reach. What I will say though is, um, that oftentimes the um, the migrants that I'm talking about, the African migrants that are finding themselves in, in ICE detention, they are um, almost immediately, once they cross into America, they're taken into detention. So it's not as if they are going to their sponsors and are in the United States and are then um, detained um, and taken to detention. They're almost immediately put into and through this pipeline of um, immigration detention systems, which is not really the case for the sort of typical ICE story that we hear in the United States, which is of you know a man living in the United States for 30 years and being captured on his way to work and, and taken to detention. There are a few of those cases. So uh, we represented a Nigerian woman who was actually um, uh, uh, in her final semester to being a nurse in the United States and has a seven-year-old daughter and as she was finishing her nursing degree was captured by ICE and, and taken to detention. Imagine in the midst of a pandemic um, that that's who was being detained. Um, so those cases exist, but by and large, the pipeline is very strong and immediate. Yeah, I mean, geez, these are all heartbreaking stories. And you wonder with, with a Biden administration possibly on the cards, we still don't know yet, but one wonders, can this, can ICE change um, what, yeah, how do we, how do we transform ICE? Is it possible that under a Biden administration, its powers will be reined in? Is it the political will and appetite for that? And something I wonder is, you know, it's often thrown around as a, as a slogan that we should abolish ICE, but it seems to me that, you know, the American sort of um, immigration enforcement complex is so deeply entrenched that, the day ICE is abolished is probably going to be an equivalent organization under a different name that comes into being and mm -hmm. operates to do much the same job. So, so yeah, what does a Biden administration mean for the potential of trying to curtail the power of this entity? And can it possibly be abolished? And what needs to happen in order for that to be materialized? Um, I'll start by saying- Sean, I, think I think Sean wants to add something, but he's muted. Oh. Go ahead. Um, 
So I messed up the nice production there. Urgh. No, I was just going to add. Um, so the other part of the question is like, how does it, what does it mean like for African asylum seekers, for African, you know, refugees, for, for, for African migrants? Like is Trump, we asked this, as you remember, we asked this from, from Abraham too. Is Biden going to be better mm -hmm. African refugees? That's the second part, you know. Like I can hear you like, you're like making, you don't sound convinced. Or maybe I heard you wrong, but maybe you wanna you wanna take a stab at that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a complicated question. Um, you know, I am part of a sort of really progressive left that does deeply believe that there is simply no alternative um, to a safe and equitable migration policy that does not include abolishing ICE. There, it is just simply impossible. Um, and, you know, every day in our campaigns and in our work, that is first and foremost our, our goal, our ask, um, and our vision for, um, for immigration policy. With that said, um, having worked with um, dozens of Cameroonians over the last few months, I have become very aware of the, the real importance of um, small piecemeal reforms that allow at the very least the folks who are at the border who are in detention centers some reprieve. So um, for example, I've been working with a group of advocates to ensure that Cameroon has temporary protected status, which is status given to eligible nations um, and countries who um, oftentimes come from countries that are in the midst of armed, co armed conflict or natural disasters and allow folks from these designated countries to sort of live and work in the United States for a temporary amount of time. Now, this is not a, a permanent solution, but it is a solution that provides some relief and allows folks at the very least to not feel as though they are at risk of deportation and are not living in sort of endless precarity for, for years at a time. Um, getting and gaining TPS status for a country is virtually impossible. It has happened under the Trump administration, but I do believe is more likely to happen under, under a Biden administration. I think there may be some openness amongst the Democrats um, um, to, to do such a thing. So I think there are these sort of piecemeal reforms that are crucial. I, I do think um, that even in the case where Trump does not get elected over or today, um, over the next few months, we will see him amping and ramping up deportations of African migrants. So, you know, best case scenario, Biden wins today, and we're still really screwed over the next few months because he still has um, the full authority to continue deporting folks from now until January. And so, um, you know, a lot of a lot of us on the ground who are worrying about these issues are really just thinking piecemeal how to ensure folks are not getting deported between now and January and what to do about that. Um, I think under the Biden administration, we have, I mean, just judging from his campaign rhetoric, I don't see him um, making any, you know, radical departure from Obama's policy. It will, you know, I don't think we'll see the same images of family separation as we saw under the Trump presidency. But I think, you know, William, as you were saying earlier, we're, we're going back to normal. And normal was really what bought us here in the first place. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm excited for the piecemeal work. I'm not so much um, optimistic for the sort of grand radical action that needs to happen to ensure that there is an actual material impact for folks on the ground.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right, and 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 I'll 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 add this to the question I wanted to ask, which is, what do those piecemeal reforms look like? Because I think I think something that a reform can do is it could be a kind of a non-reform reform, which creates the space for for democratic politics and for people to build power. Mm-hmm. And then related to that is um, how do immigrants build power so that they can assert their rights. So yeah. uh, Cameroonian asylum seekers on the U- southern US borders are often called the most organized. Mm-hmm. So how are they organizing to defend their rights and freedoms? And, and how should the organized left sort of empower those efforts with this population of, of stateless people? How do we organize stateless mm-hmm. people? What are the kind of you know, non-reform reforms that we could push that makes the task of organizing them easier so that we can build the requisite power to get these dramatic changes. Yeah, great and question. Do we, and, do we, and do we see those stateless people not as kind of in limbo? Yeah. Or do we begin to see them as like this, it's a real thing, they're there now. There's like a lot of these people, you know, they're not going anywhere. Right. They're not going to go home someday. So like, you know, well, unless they're deported, unless they're deported, even then, even then you know. But yes, or, or they're in the case of Abram, where he says, "I would like this and this and this," and then one day, I might feel like I could go back to that place. But until then, these people, are, you know, sometimes people have been there since the 1960s. Yeah, that's right. Right. So, how does one organize? How does you, as the left, as progressives, like how do you? What do you do when you when you see that? Yeah. Um, so you all threw a few questions at me. I'm going to try to see how to go about answering that. This is um, kind of our fashion. We kind of like, like when you think you got it, be like, nah, let's, let's throw more. Let's throw yeah. more. <laughs> we honestly know nothing. We literally bring people on the show because we're like, oh, we're too lazy to read. Let's just invite some smart people and make them talk. <laughs> and let us ask them everything. Um, okay. So let me see. Um, I'll start here. I think in terms of um, organizing and reform. So by and large, so much of the activism that's been happening um, in ICE detention is is as a response to two things. One is because a lot of folks are receiving inadequate medical care, um, which really reflects a sort of broader pattern of medical bias against Black people in the United States. Nothing, It's nothing new there. Um, but what has happened over the last few weeks with the whistleblower story of the forced um, sterilizations, for example, and identifying the various Cameroonian women who were sterilized um, against their consent, um, some of whom were then um, attempted to be deported, though that did not work. But um, the medical, the lack of medical support for African migrants is quite frankly terrifying and horrifying. And in fact, um, a few folks have have died in ICE custody over the last few few years, um, and I, by few years I mean two years or so. So this really is a a fairly um, um, I, I don't want to say new, but it's an exacerbating situation on the ground. Um, the second reason why, by and large, folks are protesting is because they um, black migrants and Cameroonians and Haitians in particular are getting denied 
um, asylum and are getting denied uh, bond and uh, parole in, in ICE immigration courts at rates that far exceed almost any other country. So um, 86% of Haitians, for example, are denied um, asylum in the United States. 59% of Somalis are denied asylum in the United States. I mean, these are really, really harrowing uh, numbers of African migrants who have been denied um, their asylum, and then even even scarier numbers for uh, bond and parole exists for African migrants. So when thinking about these two issues, um, I think there is a sort of immediate need there. Um, I think folks need immediate medical care. That is a call of action that I think is um, is narrow, is discreet, but really gets at the heart of what folks in these detention centers need, just as an immediate um, and material thing and, and call to action. I think the second is a bit harder around how do we ensure that the denial rates for asylum and, and bond and parole is not as high. I think some of that depends, frankly, on a kind of um, media narrative campaign. I think um, judges maybe, and you know, I, I don't proclaim to speak on behalf of all judges denying Cameroonians or, or all black migrants at that. Um, but I think there's a kind of ignorance around what is happening in Cameroon. Um, you know, we live in a country where the president calls all African countries shithole countries. I think that leads to a sort of public consciousness that suggests that Africa is one big conglomerate that is really, um, uh, you know, there's no one country that is struggling more than the other. If you let the Cameroonians in, we may have to let everyone in. Um, and so I think what we're trying to do now is to ensure that while we're talking about Black migrants as a collective, because we do see patterns that impact Black migrants as a collective, we also don't conflate all African countries. What's happening in Cameroon is urgent. Um, it is escalating. And um, we need to get folks understanding um, just how dangerous it is for folks who are fleeing the country. And, and I don't think that is sort of resonating with a lot of folks just yet. Um, so there's a narrative piece to it. And, you know, not just of judges, but I think the public consciousness, American public consciousness more generally is just unaware of these things. Um, you know, that doesn't say a lot, but yes, it's true. Um, and so I, I just believe that that while fighting for and demanding these really bold um, and, and necessary actions of abolition, um, these small, just piecemeal um, reforms um, are responding to just the immediate needs of folks in detention. There's then um, uh, two other things I think are really hindering this moment, which is that uh, Black migrants are just not provided with the same level of legal support um, and material support. So for example, there's a group of um, Cameroonian um, detainees now in Louisiana who have actually won their asylum cases, but don't have a sponsor that will sort of vouch for them that, uh, that will allow them to leave. So they're simply in detention for no other reason. There's no one who will sort of um, you know, sign off and, and sponsor them. That is something that I think is, is fixable or so to say, and can get as many folks out as possible. So, you know, that's all to say that I think in the immediate future, my goal is to get as many folks out of detention as possible to ensure that folks are not dying in detention and to support the really bold and radical movement that's happening um, in these detention, detention centers. Uh, 
I'll also say um, in regards to how folks are organizing outside of the United States. So in Mexico, um, and really big shout out to the Cameroonian American Council and Sylvie Bello in particular, who have been doing this work for quite some time now, but they are connected to folks on the ground and are constantly um, intervening and supporting and nurturing and sustaining activism that's happening in Mexico to ensure that the Mexican government at the very least is aware of what's happening to Cameroonian migrants um, and is then lobbying the United Nations and other multinational organizations to provide um, food and other necessities because folks by and large are living um, you know, in sort of almost refugee-like conditions, refugee camp-like conditions that are just harrowing in, in a lot of ways. Um, so the work is happening. There are small underfunded organizations, like I said, the Cameroonian American Council is one that is supporting some of this work. Um, so I think that's just a, an easy way for folks to get involved and support the um, organizing that's happening on the ground. So we have one, one last question, which if you don't want to attempt it, you don't have to. But I have heard people say that what is the larger like like when you when you think beyond like you know these kind of as you said like this the immediate struggles, the specific struggles, like in a broader sense, like what is it is 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 abolishing borders is mm. that a realistic goal uh, for for struggle and how would that work? I mean, this is the this again this could be a program on its own, but we got it. I had to throw that in there at the end, like. What is it that we want around I this? love how you all have a confidence in me to answer how to abolish borders. I really appreciate that vote of confidence. Um, well, we start by naming naming the program, uh, the, the site Africa is a country. That's that's one yeah. <laughs> sure. I should ask you guys that question. How did you think? Um, I personally am one to believe that um, borders are... Um, uh, a sort of manifestation of the carceral system. So I, yes, I do believe that um, the abolition of borders is where we need to head as humans in this world. In terms of how to do it, um, I'm hard pressed as a student of international relations to believe that it's gonna happen in my lifetime in part because um, we are a deeply tribal com global community. Um, you know, we see with Trump's election now just how um, entrenched tribalism is in the United States based on ethnicity, on uh, along color lines, et cetera. Um, we're seeing even, you know, in, in revolutionary movements across the continent, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm ethnically Sudanese and have seen just how, um, uh, both how powerful and dangerous this sort of deep form of nationalism can be. Um, and I, I think that we are far, far away from really deeply understanding how much of a success the world, the, the human experiment will be in the case that ab abolition of, of borders is in place. Um, but I think so long as you have folks who are trapped at the margins, who are really at these um, um, at these borders fighting for a chance to simply live their best lives. We just have no other recourse. And I, I, I struggle with this question quite a bit because um, on one end, I, you know, I represent some of these folks and feel a sort of deep 
but also um, very sort of narrowing um, ambition to sort of free them because they are, you know, the sort of victims of this larger, um, you know, nationalist white supremacist system. Um, and so it's hard for me, I think, to come out of the weeds at times to imagine what, a, what an alternative world looks like um, because it's so dire. And I think that's why this election is such an important one because it will allow us, I think, to start reimagining again, what a world where we're not firefighters and putting out emergencies constantly can look like. And I very much look forward to that vision. I, I am fighting for that vision. I'm, I'm holding onto it deeply in my heart. Um, and I'm hoping that after today, we get a chance to start building the world that, that we wanna live in and not simply ensuring that folks aren't dying at the margins and, and at the border. So, you know, we'll see. That's a that's an incredibly powerful note to bring the program to the close. I mean, if if you are in the territories known as the not so United States, vote mm -hmm. Biden. Just do it. Hold your nose. Vote Biden, so we can we can start you know struggling afterwards and so on and so forth. Not to say that it's going to be easier. It's absolutely not going to be easier. But at least we're going to be starting on a better foot than than where we are now. And. On that note, thank you so much, Aya. Thank you so much, Abraham, who's with us earlier. Thank you to you, our viewers, for, for joining us on the show. There's a lot going on today. So to take the time out to watch this instead of all of the distracting noise is, is much appreciated. Please do hit like and subscribe on our channel. We're going to be back next week, Tuesday. And thank you once again, as always, to our wonderful producer, Antoinette Engel. And on that note, uh, hopefully when Sean and I are talking next, we'll be a little bit less dispirited and less discouraged and, and we, can, we can struggle on to the future that, that I want for us and that we all want for each other. So yeah, thank you very much. See you next time. Thank you guys. Take care. Bye, see you in cool.